sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. I'm talking today to Karen James about her research. Karen was awarded a higher degree by research grant in the SPA research grant round of 2014. That might seem like a while ago, but good research does take time. The title of the proposal for which she was granted funds was the language and social characteristics of adolescent students attending public behavioural schools, a controlled group comparison. Karen's recently had an article based in the research published in language, speech and hearing services in schools. She's currently employed in schools in New South Wales and also in the health department. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. Nice to be talking to you. Karen is currently sitting in Sydney and I'm sitting in Western Australia. So this is a triumph of technology, I guess. Karen, could you start by talking a little bit about your reasons for undertaking the research degree and in particular, the area that you decided to study? I I was one of these clinicians who always, funnily enough, vowed I would never do research because I thought I'm a clinician's clinician. But I had started working as a clinical educator at the University of Sydney, and they asked me to go and do a school-based project in a behavioural school. So I was like, sure, why not? And then they tell me it's for teenagers. And when I asked what should I do? I think the response was, we don't know, go and see what you can find out. Oh, wonderful. It's always a nice surprise. So here I was about to undertake six students to a behavioural school for kids aged 12 to 16 years. Yes. Karen, could I interrupt just for a sec and ask you maybe to talk a little bit about what a behavioural school is for those of us who are not based in New South Wales and may not have the concept? Oh, of course. <laughs> I keep forgetting. Not Australia is not the same. No. <laughs> so a, a behavioural school is basically a specialised school set up by the Department of Education for kids that can't uh, tolerate being in mainstream schools. And it's because their behaviours are too severe to manage in that mainstream setting. So the idea is it's a small setting with classes of maybe six students and then it's, mm-hmm. they might have shorter days and alternative curriculum and just ways to try to get them to engage with learning and so that the mainstream schools are also not having to manage their difficult behaviours. Mm, a challenging context then. 
a very challenging context. And I think one of the reasons I was asked it, because at first I was like, why am I being asked to do this? Because I was a fairly new clinical educator. And uh, basically it was because one of my passions is brain injuries, which is obviously behavioural stuff. So uh -huh. they thought, well, you know, this sounds like something you might enjoy. Um, so there I was faced with, like say, taking six undergraduate speech pathology students to a place that I knew nothing about. And when I got to the school and said, what is it you want from speech pathologists? They said, we have no idea. And it turned out that the school counsellor had attended an in-service that Pamela Snow had presented and started talking about the connection between language and behaviour. So the school counsellor took it back to the principal who said, great, we need speech pathologists but they had no idea what they actually wanted. I had no idea what I was doing. So I hit the journals and the research and the books only to discover there really wasn't anything out there. So I guess that started my journey of what am I going to do in this school for 12 weeks when there's nothing to tell me how to manage A, teenagers and B, teenagers who have behavioural problems. Um, so... Basically, I started by just saying to the school, all right, we want a little bit of language work. We want a little bit of social stuff. So I sort of had to draw on the evidence from brain injury as well as autism because they were the closest I get could get to managing teenagers and behaviours. And, yeah, from that, basically developed a program in which the speech students saw individual students at the school, but we also did a social communication group for one hour a day in each of the classrooms focusing on a particular social skill um, and I was actually very shocked at the end with this pilot program at how successful it was um, when I started they said they had maybe one student a year who would either progress back into the mainstream school setting or would go off to do TAFE or further education at the end of 12 weeks, they had six students being reintegrated either back into mainstream schools or an alternative ed uh, educational setting, such as TAFE or apprenticeship. And I was like, wow, just targeting language and the social stuff, we're seeing changes here. So that kind of got me thinking, why isn't there any research out there on this? That, you know, it's obviously effective. Mm. <laughs> so I started my whole research journey, I guess, into, you know, what, where do we start? What can we target? Where are the problems, et cetera? Um, so, yeah, so in relation to your question of how it even started, it started from a clinical education perspective where I was taking students into a setting that didn't know what they wanted with someone who didn't know what they were doing. And from that, it was like, here are lots of questions I've got. How can I answer them? <laughs> what a fascinating pathway into the research. So mm -hmm. tell us a bit now about the research project that you carried out. So my research project was, as I said, I wanted to get, I, when I was thinking about as a clinician, because I was always like, oh, I always thought academia, a bit stuffy, a bit out of the real world. <laughs> I was thinking, as a clinician, what is it I'd like to know? So I decided to look at the research. I wanted to know what's a profile, if I was presented with a 
teenager, because it was a little bit of work on younger kids, but as a teenager who I was told had behavioural problems or attention deficit disorder, oppositional defiant disorders, etc., where would I start with them? So my research project started looking, I wanted to look at the narrative skills, the what we called structural language skills, which is like your grammar and your vocab, and also the social communication skills of teenagers. And from that, we class them from ages 12 to 16 um, in behavioural schools to look at what their profile might look at and then compared those skills to a similar demographic of students who were attending mainstream schools. Um, because it was decided that oh, when I was looking at it, there were so many other factors going, a lot of these kids in behavioural settings come from, say, for example, low socioeconomic backgrounds, or they come from disadvantaged backgrounds with, um, with respect to multiculturalism, etc. Um, so, yeah, so I decided rather than just doing here are the kids at the behavioural school, I wanted to be able to compare them to get a, mm. a fairer result to, to a similar cohort of students that didn't have identified behavioural difficulties. So then it wasn't being biased by tests, etc. Um, so, yeah, so my research was, as I said, doing basically a, almost a comparison study of looking at narrative, structural language and social communication. But then I also wanted to find out what's the prevalence of communication difficulties in students who have behavioural difficulties. And when I say behavioural difficulties, the kids in the behavioural schools. And what was there an area in particular? So was it more there was language problems? Was it more a social problem or did they all come together to make one problem? Um, so I'm not sure that's a bit convoluted, that, but... <laughs> no, that's interesting. So to summarise, you were looking at the language characteristics of this group of children to see whether they differed from children in mainstream settings. Yeah, but the mainstream settings of a similar, like the same low SES backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, the control aspect. And what did you find? Uh, what we found is probably no surprises to, to most people. Um, we did find there, there was a significant difference and there, if we start off even with their, their narrative skills, mm. they were, their, their, their narrative overall, so I used a test called the Ernie, oh, yes. basically a story, they tell the story based on pictures and then they have to, then they have to answer some questions about it. So it looked at their vocab as well as their comprehension of the stories. But then also I wanted to look at the macro structure. So I used the SALT, which is analysis of grammar and uh, characteristics of stories. But what it showed us interestingly was that, yes, their narrative telling, ability to tell a story in a cohesive way was a lot lower than kids who were in the mainstream school. What was interesting was in actual fact, their stories were a lot longer then their mainstream cohorts, but it contained less detail. <laughs> so someone listening to them might thought, oh, gee, this, this adolescent is telling us a really good story. It makes sense. But if you actually then analyse the details and the vocabulary that was used, it was very basic and a lot of the time very nonspecific, 
even though it looked longer than the, the peers who are in the mainstream schools. Uh, their overall structural language stuff, so looking at their ability to say with analogies and grammar, again, was lower. Uh, but what was most interesting was their social communication skills. So we, I guess people assume, well, I did always, that these kids have behavioural problems because they don't know how to act appropriate in social situations. Um, and their behaviour, therefore, is causes the problems. <laughs> mm. uh, and interestingly, what we found with the social skills was, yes, they're, so we looked at both their expressive language side of the social communication as well as their comprehension of social communication overall two-thirds the social communication overall was uh was different and a lot worse but what was more interesting was the problems they had so most of them for example one of the things we looked at was their ability to identify emotions or to be able to look at a situation and say that person means what they're saying. So can they look at sarcasm? Can they look at a situation and say that person did the wrong thing? This is why it's the wrong thing. <laughs> and what interesting what we found was they could identify common emotions, so happy, sad, etc. But when it came to more complex emotions such as bored or surprised, they would still call them the wrong thing. So, for example, one of, the, one of the things we noticed in the schools with kids with behaviour problems is they'll always go, I'm bored. I don't want to do this. I'm bored. But what they're actually feeling is they're anxious because they can't do the work. But they don't have the emotional vocabulary to distinguish between what is it like to be anxious versus bored, so they use the word they know, which is bored. Mm. And our research confirmed that they, they just don't have this emotional vocabulary when it comes to more complex stuff. And then the other, other interesting thing was that when they came to telling us what was wrong with the situation, they could identify, so the test we used, they had to look at a scene, hear a voice, say this person did the wrong thing, this is why it is wrong. They could identify what was wrong with the situation but when asked to explain why it was wrong and what they could do differently they they could half the time they could say this is wrong but then asked what would you do differently they didn't know mm. and that sort of had really a clear picture to me go wow this is what i see in the classrooms so if a student gets into trouble for knocking over a chair for example the, the teacher will say, why was that wrong? And the student will say, because I shouldn't knock over chairs because they've learned that's the answer I've got to give. But then when you ask them further and say, but why is that wrong? They actually don't know. So therefore they're not going to change their behaviours later because they don't know why it was wrong. They just know it is wrong. <laughs> mm. um, and that's where this research interestingly showed us that they don't, they can't make that connection. They just... I've been told this is wrong, I've been told this is why it's wrong, but I don't really understand why it's wrong. I thought it was fascinating and opens up a whole new world to when we're working with kids who have behavioural difficulties. The other interesting thing, when the research showed when, when, the, when the kids were telling us their stories, 
if they didn't know the answer to something, they would, uh, interestingly, they would draw back to something that's happened to their, in their lives. So for what I mean by that is one of, the, one of the picture scenes we had was a boy had basically come home, his friends had switched a bag over, so he got home, realised it was the wrong bag, and then the implication is mum is on the phone calling the friends. So you have to infer that information. But when the students from the behavioural school were asked, who is mum calling, over a third of them said, mum's calling the police. Mm. <laughs> and you're like hang on, the police, where did the police come into this? <laughs> like, because there's throughout the story, there's no mention or even indication police would be involved. Um, but in their lives, you'd come home, you could have stolen it, mum's on the phone to the police or something's happened, you call the police. Mm. So they couldn't. They make interesting, certainly interesting findings, um, which probably have some fairly clear clinical implications. Uh, very much so when we, when we ta start looking at uh, a lot of these students who are in behavioural schools or alternative school settings because of their behaviour, go down the path of juvenile justice, for example, or when they get older. Um, when we're looking at working with these kids in a clinical context, we need to be able to teach them for example, how to give their version of a situation using the right words. So if they're talking with police, for example, or to someone in authority at schools, they know what sort of detail they need to be giving and they also know to be able to say, I actually don't know how to explain this. Um, it's also the clinical implications, like I said, even teaching them how to be socially appropriate and recognise that it's okay to say, I don't know why this is wrong, can you help me out? Because at the moment they don't have the cause and effect relationship, they don't have the vocabulary to be able to do that. Um, what I found in my clinical practice is it's helped me establish a social communication program that's more appropriate for adolescents, for example, uh, rather than the traditional speech pathology programs we do, which is your turn taking eye contact, etc. when people traditionally think of social skills. Whereas this research is showing us actually, we need to be looking more at perspectives. Uh, we need to be looking at being able to identify a disagreement and an argument. We need to be able to teach them emotions and to be able to identify themselves along with psychologists and school counsellors for example when you feel this it actually means you're anxious and you've got to work out why you're anxious to be able to fix it rather than just saying i'm bored and walking away and refusing to do something which gets you into trouble it's been fascinating to see the changes and helping them recognize that their behavior doesn't define them they can, there's a reason for why their behavior uh, why they act out and that they have control to change it. And I think our role as a speech pathologist needs to expand to that with this population group. Um, I had one student I worked with who, it took us six months before he actually turned around and said to me one day, I don't know, can you help me? Whereas at the start, he'd just be refusing to do it and walking away and storming off. And it was like this huge success to me, but he just mm -hmm. said, can you help me? <laughs> because he was finally saying, I have control over this. And 
these are the words I need to use. I'm not stupid by asking for help, which a lot of these. Um, really important implications, I think. Mm. Where will you take this research next, Karen? Uh, the next lot of research, well, the, the next hopefully publication we'll have will be expanding more on the social communication side of our findings um, because well to start with one of the the tests I use for the social skills is actually only used normally up to the age of 12 so using it in a population of 12 to 16 year olds the author gave us permission to trial it and it showed us very clearly where some some differences and problems so in terms of the research, A, publications, we want to write up the results, but then the next stage of where I'd like to do with research is actually be looking at, for example, this social communication program I've developed for the couple of schools I'm in to see working specifically in an emotional behavioural disorder class or a, cl a class where there are behavioural problems can we change them in adolescence so that they want to start engaging in class again rather than getting into trouble? So that's my next view. Uh, the other next half with the research is I've been starting to do some work with the PCYC, which is one of the local branches of the police force, uh, which I believe is national-wise, to look at working with the police in their programs in schools. Can we again, help these vulnerable teenagers from entering into crime or into the, the system. And that's helping uh, researching the programs they're using and by adapting the language that's used in it, as well as incorporating the social component. So that's, that's the grand plans. <laughs> Lots of valuable work still to do. One last thing, very quickly. Do you have any advice for clinicians who are interested in getting into the research field? Most definitely. Um, going back to, like I said, I never thought I would do research. I thought it was too hard and too much work and I didn't know where to start. But in actual fact, it, it's not easy, but if you have a passion and you've got a question, anyone can do it with support. Uh, so I'd be encouraging anyone to approach universities or people you know that can help you out of where to start because coming up with that clinical question is the hardest thing and knowing where to start because I think the biggest thing with research is we've got these two bigger projects to get smaller. Accessing things like the SPA grants, there's not, in actual fact, I wouldn't have been able to finish my research to complete my master's without the SPA grant because uh, it was just too difficult to be working and collecting the data and analysing, et cetera. So I'm forever grateful having access to those opportunities. But even talking at, at, to people at conferences and saying, how did you start? We can do it. Maybe you start with a quality project <laughs> and from that develop it into a research idea, working alongside someone to start with and then branching onto your own. Um, but it, it's the best thing and now I've got all these ideas for research both in because I work in health as well as education So I think once you start it's something that gets you more interested and enthusiastic about the profession and seeing changes and things That's wonderful advice Karen. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and I wish you all the best with those 
next research projects. Thanks, Corey. It's been a pleasure.